to Sin City. Get ready for in-depth chat on new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you cinephiles. Only on CMRU.ca and Feel Loud Images. And now, to your host, Nick Manessas. Hello there, and welcome back to the city. I am your host, Nick, and I'm joined today by our boy, straight from Houston, Texas. Hello there, Emmanuel. How do you do today? I'm doing good. Great. It's great to hear. And you have made it just in time. And I know I've said this so many times, but today is a very, very special day because we will be covering the 25th anniversary of one of the best horror films of all time. And that is, of course, Scream. So today we will be covering the entirety of the Scream franchise, all the way from the first to the fourth film. And good timing too, seeing as how there's a new one being made next year with the exact same title as the first one. Kind of like with the new Halloween sequel, basically. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I like that. I like that as fact it's not a reboot, that it's a continuation. Because it's, it's already a great franchise. I, didn't, I don't think they, there's a need to, you know, restart the wheel and go in the same event, uh, direction as Halloween films and other franchises, so I, I like that. Yeah, me too. And again, like I mentioned before, this is a very important film to me because this is the film that introduced me to the world of horror. It's practically the reason why I, I'm such a diehard horror fan. And in fact, many of the movies mentioned in Scream, Halloween, and Nightmare on Elm Street, I wouldn't have known or familiarized myself with them if it wasn't for Scream. And this is a film that cannot be overstated or understated because the influence is just so huge. And there's no better way to tell it than a story. You see, once upon a time, there was the 80s. And our boys from horror, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, they reigned supreme. They scared the living crap out of us. They just eviscerated their way through the box office numbers. But then came the 90s. And what happened? Freddy died, Jason went to hell, literally and figuratively, and Michael Myers just got out of shape. And Scream, it revitalized the genre. By how? By being self-aware, meta, postmodern, and we all owe it to Wes Craven. Yeah, I mean, this was. I mean, you had Wes Craven who directed this, this these films, and he's he's obviously a fan. He he's part of that movement. That part of that movement in the nineties and eighties, where you had these great horror films coming out. That would, yeah, they had jump scares, but they had great characters and stories to them, and they elevated the genre. So that was what's so cool about it. And Wes Craven, he's known for, you know, his, his horror, but also like thriller vibes and suspenseful vibes. And I felt he, this was the perfect marriage between him and those and the material by written by Kevin Williamson, great writer. And it was really a match made in heaven because at the time, the horror, the slasher genre was kind of just going downhill, you know, like everything was directed to, to videos. It wasn't really selling, but then this film just came out and revitalized it. So. That was pretty awesome. It's kind of like what Deadpool was to the superhero genre. It's a film that deconstructs the horror genre. And I love a good deconstruction. It's, it's a film that's making fun of itself 
and the genre at the same time. It's genius. It's a perfect balance of both comedy, self-aware comedy, and straight-up horror. It's a perfect combination of both, really. Yeah, yeah. In the 90s, you had a lot of meta stuff coming out, you know. Of course, you had Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and his, his style. The audience members, they, they know a lot more than what people give them. You know, they watch these movies and they can pick up on certain, you know, tropes and things like that. So it made sense that, that these pe people talk that way. And also, the other good thing was it didn't take itself too seriously. I feel like if it took itself too seriously, it, it wouldn't be as funny and it wouldn't be as impactful. Me too, yeah, and also you're in luck because right now we're gonna go over through the entirety of the Scream movies all the way from the original back in 96 and all the way to the recent one back in 2011. So, let's get started. So the original Scream, I've had the pleasure of watching this at midnight back when I was 12 years old actually and I had to wait until my parents were fast asleep, you know, because they wouldn't let me watch horror films back then. But now things change, you know, growing up, coming of age, yada, 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 you know the stuff. But Scream, one thing that really made this movie so impactful and a part of my childhood years and teenage years too was the opening. My God, that opening scene. Now that is the perfect way to start a movie, to really hook the audience in. And let's be honest, even though you and I and the audience members already know that KC, spoiler alert by the way, that both KC and her boyfriend Steve will die right before the movie even begins, it's still very hard to watch because this is a very realistic kind of fear, you know? Like, have you ever felt that feeling when you were home alone at night? It's quiet, way too quiet. And you get the feeling that you're not really alone. And then some stranger starts calling you in the phone. And then what starts out as a simple, casual conversation suddenly turns dead serious. And the caller starts threatening you and tone starts becoming more and more malicious. It gets, it hits hard too, especially with uh, the uprising of social media and all these Facebook stalkers too. Yeah, yeah. I'm like... That opening scene is amazing because it sets up the tone and also like no one's going to be safe, you know, when you see that. You could almost see like um, her character could have been like a main character. It's almost like the beginning of Psycho in a way where you follow like uh, Janet Lee's character, but then she gets killed. I think you're, there's an anticipation that she gets killed, but the way that, she, that it's done is so different. And um, so, yeah, that was great about it. And also... Uh, this film is really relied on like trying to subvert any audience expectations like along the way. I first saw the film when I was younger. I really liked it a lot. Um, being a '90s kid, it, it encapsulates everything about the '90s. You know, like high school, high school dramas and like people speaking uh, self-referentially in meta meta ways and being self-aware. Yeah, it just had that '90s feel to it. That I really liked when I was, as a kid. Drew Barrymore, who played Casey, she was a high-profile actress best known for appearing in all of these rom-coms and dramas. And not only did this movie serve as a huge uh, boost-up comeback for her 
after having disappeared from the public eye for quite some time, but it really shocked the audience because Drew Barrymore, people were expecting her to be the main character, you know, given her high profile as an actress. So it's just gut-wrenching, literally speaking, that she gets killed off in the very first 10 minutes of the movie. Now that, that right there is how to perfectly open a story. Yeah, it's a great opening. And then also, it's just a tone of... Well, you see it now, it's commonplace in these films now, but you know, that first conversation between her and Ghostface, you know, it becomes... First it starts out playful, then it becomes more and more creepy. It becomes more and more... Like, he's asking her these questions, all these trivia stuff. And then it becomes like... And that's how that's good writing, where it becomes, it becomes like, very innocent, then it becomes more and more malicious. Like, obviously he's watching her, obviously he's knows a lot about her and you know he's able to do these trick questions on her like because of course a person like her would know some of these quite these answers then he's able to like manipulate it to where you know she gets it wrong because of course he wanted to kill her so he, he's trying to psychologically like uh trap her to make her feel uh, on, on edge and uh when he goes in for the kill so it's yeah it's just great writing and it just sets up the rest of the movie in terms of tone. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And kudos, too, to Drew Barrymore. That is one of the most chillingly realistic portrayals of fear I've ever seen. In fact, I read online that to really sell in the performance, director Wes Craven, he took Casey, I mean, Drew Barrymore, into a soundstage and he showed her pictures of animal killings and cruelty since Drew Barrymore is an animal lover. So that is another fine example of enforced method acting. And also kudos to Roger L. Jackson as the voice of Ghostface. There's something about his voice. It's just both a mixture of arousing and just terrifying. Maybe he could, <laughs> should consider taking a career in ASMR or even podcast hosting instead of just gutting teenagers just for the fun of it. I always found his, his voice to be fun. You know, like it's, it's, it has that balance. Like, yeah, it's kind of mischievous. It's also kind of um, tongue in cheek, like funny, like, because he's like talking on a raspy, but almost like funny voice and, He's like a, he's like a guy, those guys that you meet, like those cool guys you meet in parties and stuff that having a good time and maybe drink a little too much. <laughs> but that, the way this, the voice was done was really, it really strikes that balance of creepy, but also like. Right. One that throws you off guard for sure. Yeah. And, and kudos to the costume department. Well, not really department department because to those unfamiliar with this, the Ghostface costume has actually existed long before the movie even came out. You could get it at a party store or the closest dollar store even, but the movie made the costume popular, actually. And the Ghostface costume is uh, what I call awesome, but impractical. Like, for one, the costume is good for stealth. It really lets you blend in the darkness, hide in the shadows, sneak on your prey, and makes it difficult to see if it's a guy or a girl. But for the chase, not very good. Because if you notice, the mask's eye holes are very constricted, which makes it difficult to see. And you're practically wearing a skirt, which constricts your leg movement. No wonder the 
post-face killers, whenever they're in a chase, they tend to be t- way too clumsy. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, because I always wonder, why is he tripping over things? Or why does he seem like he, he's not really coordinated well? And then like, yeah, you make a good, you make a good point. But I always knew it, like it was something, I even knew maybe it was the, the guy was just incompetent or like he was, but it was also maybe the costume too. So that was in the back of my head. But that adds on to the funniness too, the humor. But it also can be scary too, because if you think about it, like this guy is on hands, like he's tripping over stuff. There's something not right with this person. So yeah, it's, I like how the film does that. The franchise does that. It balances like, it has that fine line between funniness, but also like scariness too. And realism too. Don't forget about that too. It takes place in a fictional town and it's a fictional story, but it's still very down-to-earth, very grounded in realism. It's a film that follows the same rules and logic of our world. And keep in mind, too, that the Ghostface Killer isn't like Freddy, Jason, or Michael. He isn't some supernatural killer that can walk off injuries. It's a real human being of flesh and blood. A very messed up, but still a regular human being. Yeah, that's what makes it scary, too. I think a good thing we keep coming back to in these horror films is how the monsters could be, the the real monsters could be the human beings, right? And these stories, they follow these these disturbed people, but then you look at their motivations. For the most part, it's understandable motivation. Mostly it's revenge and uh, jealousy. I mean, those are like two ancient human motivations, right? And how people operate when it comes to violence and murders. So, uh, yeah, that can be scary. Another thing, too, about the Scream franchise that makes it scary, that the Ghostface Killer could be anybody you know. I mean, it could be anybody in your, in your friends, your family. That's what makes it scary Sydney, the main character, because I think that's why she gets paranoid over the course of the film, because, like, it could be anybody that she's hanging out with. And then when you find out who it is, a lot of cases, it's like our closest relative or closest friend, too. So in the first film, it's her boyfriend. So it's just, yeah, it's it's a great, uh, great device. Great, yeah. mm-hmm. Definitely. Great, great Definitely. And about that, now that, that right there is how to make a really great twist. A double subversion at its finest. Because at first, we are led to believe that her boyfriend, Billy, is the killer. But then the movie plays around with the possibility that he might be innocent and was falsely accused. So we can take a breath of fresh air and rest in the knowledge that we were wrong. He's innocent. He's not the bad guy. But then the movie pulls the rug right from under us and show us he is the killer. Now that, that right there is how to perfectly subvert audience expectations. Yeah, I forgot who the killer was when I was after I watched it, so I had to rewatch it. I did look it up, so I kind of knew he was going to be the killer. But then I watch, when I watched the film, it still works for me because it's um it sets up because some mystery stories and whodunits that happens sometimes where like person that you think did it actually kind of did it will do it because it's it, it sets up these seeds. If you if you pay attention to how he how he behaves and and all that stuff, I mean, yeah, he was talking about like 
Billy was talking about films and stuff like that and how he likes them too before it was revealed that, or at least he had knowledge that like only the killer would have in terms of film trivia and stuff like that. So his little nuggets that if you pay attention, it makes sense to why when he was revealed the killer. But another great thing with the twist was that he had an accomplice. That's what makes it even more like, wow, that's nobody would have guessed that. Especially Stu of all people. <laughs> Like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo just went psycho because he ran out of Scooby Snacks. And at the same time, the Scream franchise, it really benefits from creating strong, likable characters. And kudos to Wes Craven. Again, he really knows how to write characters because the characters in his movies are treated like actual people. Like people with lives, with family, and with distinctive personalities that you actually feel something. Unlike with most horror films and slashers in the 90s and nowadays sometimes, you actually feel something when they start to get killed. Yeah, the girl, that too, but also the credit goes to um, Kevin Williamson, the, um, the writer. He wrote the script. And Wes Craven, Wes Craven did turn it down, like the direct the first time. But after, I think after a draft, a second draft, he, he liked it and signed on to it. But yeah, he's just great writing because, um, like I said, in the 90s, he had a lot of self-aware meta things going on. Um, so that was, that time was right for that type of writing, that type of storytelling. Mm -hmm. and, can, and as I mentioned in last week's episode where I talked Nightmare on Elm Street, I continue to find it really mind-blowing how Wes Craven was able to do this, a meta-horror film, exactly two years after he directed Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which was a meta-film on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise in just two years apart. He had a great pedigree, so but he was still, I bet he was still looking for something new, like something that was... Because all artists do that, all directors, they look for something new to speak about, something that'll elevate a genre. And that script, the Scream script, came at the right time for him. And he was a perfect director for it. I mean, yeah. Also, the influence of Scream would be followed very bigly in the 90s because horror films like I Know What You Did Last Summer and Bride of Chucky and H20's Halloween, they copied Scream's meta twist and humor on the horror genre. And something I've always loved to mention when we bring this up, Scream, for the longest time, it was the highest grossing slasher film ever until 2018's Halloween sequel, of course. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I need to check out the Halloween sequel, 2018. But yeah, that just shows that it had a great longevity. Like a lot of people love Scream, the first Scream film. I mean, it was, it's just so, it, it revitalized the genre and it subverted all the tropes. And, and that was around the time too, another thing in the 90s where you had a lot of strong female characters coming out. You had Buffy on the TV show. You had like, uh, uh, of course, this franchise, uh, some other franchises. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of strong female characters came out. But this is kind of where it started, where he had Sydney Prescott, she, she drove the story, which a lot of strong, whenever you say strong female characters, that's what it means. It doesn't mean that they're strong, like physically or in personality, it means that 
they drive the story like they're the main characters instead of being plot devices like in a lot of times women are so that was really revolutionary at the time in the 90s with screen and other franchises mm -hmm. right exactly and bravo again to neve campbell uh, Sidney Prescott, one of the greatest final girls in a horror film ever. And the same can be said for the supporting cast with Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers. And keep in mind, this was way before she started being in Friends. And uh, the sheriff, I mean, deputy uh, Dewey Riley, you like these characters so much that you just want them to make it out alive. They are like the heart of the Scream franchise. Even in those moments when a Scream movie isn't really good, you can always count on these three to shine with their performances. Yeah, like they're my favorite characters, uh, Dewey, Gale, and Sydney. Like they're like a team. I mean, they stick, they're the constant throughout the, all these movies. And they're great characters. And they're relatable characters. Like I could actually see characters like this living in Los Angeles. You know, like Dewey's the bumbling, the kind-hearted but bumbling <laughs> police officer. Gail is the almost egotistical reporter. You know, you know that thinks she's above everybody, and Sydney's just a plain, plain girl that uh, you know, very smart on her own, but isn't she's not special? She's just normal. Wes Craven would then later continue this no more than a year later with Scream 2. And, of course, to those unfamiliar, uh, Scream 2, it became public because of the controversy that's been going on at the time, since, in case you're unfamiliar, there were certain leaks running through the internet that revealed the film's killers way before the movie even came out, so... The writers had to think quickly. They had to go through a bunch of rewrites and re-edits to change the identities of the killers. And as Scream 3 parodied this, how are the actors supposed to know what they're doing when there's a new script like every 15 damn minutes? Yeah, it was a big problem during Scream 2. They had to, uh, Kevin Williamson had to rewrite the script and they had to increase security. Then I think they had to they did something with photocopying, so like the script couldn't can be leaked or yeah, yeah. I think they made it red, or they did something to stop photocopying. And yeah, that's that can happen. It doesn't happen as much. I think security's a lot bigger now in these days. But back then, the internet just started, so like it was a big thing. Like it was like everything was just like, what the hell is going on? So they had to like you know rewrite it. That's why I guess if you look at the film and you see who really is the killer, it can, might it might make sense, but it might be like out of left field. Yeah, that could be why the Scream Two villains can be can seem, especially Mickey's character can seem like that was just out out there. But Miss Loomis is being the killer, uh, the main killer. That makes sense too because it's out of revenge mm -hmm. and right. it connects to the first film. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, it really does, and. Much like with the first Scream, this one had one hell of an opening scene uh, where Jada Pinkett Smith and her boyfriend, they get killed off in a movie theater. That opening scene, it really shows that, yeah, nowhere is safe. The killer can be anywhere at any time. Everybody is a suspect, literally. Yeah, 
I was like, that was like, holy shit. I was, that was, that sends chills down my spine. Cause she was stabbed and like the way she was stabbed, it was just freaking scary, man. Like it, I can see why people think this movie surpassed the original, but yeah, it was just, that was a very scary opening scene. That's when, when her boyfriend got stabbed in the bathroom through the head. Oh man, that was, that was terrible. <laughs> but like, uh, but I like Scream too, because it commented each, each film comments on its place in the in the franchise. So I like how Scream Two, uh, and you have Jamie Car- Jamie Kennedy's character commenting on that. And I like the conversation when they're talking about sequels in the classroom, and one of the girls gives Mickey uh, a hard time since he likes James Cameron, who famously made Terminator Two the best in the fr- franchise, which is a sequel. So I like that, and. Um, yeah, but it's a great, it is a great sequel. I, I still prefer the original, but I can see why people think it's it's better than the first, though. Right. Yeah, um, well, personally to me, no other film can beat the original, which is by this point a cliche whenever anyone mentions that. But Scream 2, there is just, I really didn't like that scene at the cafe, you know, where... Sydney's boyfriend starts si- singing for her and then everyone just dances. That really took me out of the experience. It felt like I was watching some 90s rom-com or sitcom than an actual horror movie. I felt that scene could have been cut out of the movie and it wouldn't make much of a difference. I think they did that just to, you know, make a show Sydney's life and have a nice tender moment, you know, in the in the sea of uh, in the sea of drama, and it does it does get terrible when um, a boyfriend does die in the end. So I guess that's meant to um, uh, make the impact of that more bigger. We have that tender moment earlier, mm-hmm. among other things. Right, right, yeah, and. Um... Also, I love, much like how Scream deconstructs the slasher genre, I also love it how it deconstructs the final girl archetype. Because in most of these slasher films, you'd think that when the final girl survives her ordeal with the killer, everything's fine, right? Happily ever after? No. You will, of course, be bound to live with mental scars because Sydney, she grows more paranoid and starts losing her sanity as the franchise goes on because her boyfriend a closest friend turned out to be a psycho killer to the point that now she has caller id to make sure she knows who's the person who's calling her on the other end it's just i love how they went that route with her it really made her a more complex character rather than just a cliche or an archetype yeah, and the other the other thing too is that the other thing too that made it her more of a, her more of a strong female character is that she has mommy issues. Like she's usually it's the 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 girl that has the daddy issues, but no, in her case, it's mommy issues. Like her relationship with her mom was just not great at all. Like it just wasn't great, and that's more like in my experiences with. Um, uh, female friends, yeah, relationship with mom can be just as stressful as a relationship with the dad. 
So that's more realistic and more relatable. And I like that. That's another change in how it, it goes against uh, the common thing of the girl having the daddy issues and as being a female character, main female character. So that was a nice touch. And uh, but yeah, she grows as a character because she's a. Uh, it's basically PTSD almost. It's she. It's, she's a trauma survivor, and so she's just acting out her her behavior because of what happened. She's trying to protect herself, and that's. And I like how like I think in Scream Three, not to get ahead of myself, but. Her conversation with her dad was kind of nice too because it reinforces that you know he's it, there was a good relationship between her and her father and that he does care about her i think that was in the second film where they talk i can't remember if it was second or third but they had a nice tender moment where she was you know looking at the caller id and being protective and he was supporting her right so that was nice i believe that was the third film actually which good timing okay. too because we will be getting to that right now because scream 3 man this is probably the weakest film in the entire franchise which you and i both know oh, because you see the reason why is because while the films had good balance of comedy and horror this one full-on embraces the comedy in fact scream 3 suffered from executive meddling as it turns out the first two Scream movies, they brought into reality what Billy said in Scream 1. Remember how movies don't create psychos, movies make psychos more creative. And sadly, that happened in real life because Scream inspired actual copycat killers who've seen the movie. There were these two teenagers who watched Scream and they brutally killed their own mom stabbing her several times all while saying what's your favorite scary movie which again another real life aspect from these movies how sometimes violent movies and violent video games can influence others to commit violence especially youngsters uh, young adults and teenagers even it's very yeah that's true realistically scary yeah that's true like um it happens it doesn't happen all the time but like there's always kids that are unhinged or they have mental problems and like they take it too far majority of people don't do that they just watch the film and that's it but um i was just scared of this people thinking that there's a correlation between video games and movies and violence i think it's very little but but you do get these little these people that just take it too far and they were teenagers too, so. And that's why the movie got a lighter and softer iteration. The kills were toned down to make it more lighthearted, which really didn't work at all. And at the same time, it doesn't really help that Scream 3 is the only film in the franchise not to be written by Kevin Williamson. Yeah, yeah. Williamson had, um, I think he was had a TV show at the time or he had other projects. So they had to bring in Aaron Kruger. Another guy, he does horror, and he just didn't, he didn't even follow Williams' notes, so he just did his own thing. <laughs> just wrote his own thing and just relied on more cliched stuff. I mean, if you look at the film, you're like, yeah, this is completely not, especially in, like, what, the end of the second act and the third act, where you have black guy getting killed and then girlfriend getting killed. Uh, the British, not the British, the, um, Emily Mortimer's character, uh, she was killed. Actually, Wes Craven had a good idea where, like, she was going to be the second accomplice. The actress, the actress that was acting pompous and like the skin, the really skinny girl. Yeah, that would have been cool. But no, they just relied on, you know, formula, which is sad. Yeah. In fact, Scream 3, it feels very much like 
the same type of horror film that the first Scream and the second one make fun of, actually. It's, it's, it really doesn't bode well. And another thing that really sunk this movie lower was the addition of a voice changer. And in case you're wondering, but don't iPhones have that? Well, yes, they do, but there's a difference. It's, there's a difference between a voice scrambler and a voice changer. Because in Scream 3, we have a device that lets you imitate, 100% imitate another person's voice, which feels something that belongs in a Mission Impossible movie than a horror movie, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, it just seemed out there. I mean, it seems... I never heard of any technology that does that. I only know, like, voice scramblers. Uh, but a voice changer, I don't know where they got that from. I guess to make it more scary or more cool, because Scream 3 came out in, what, a thousand or... Mm -hmm. Early 2000s? 2000, yes. Yeah, so maybe they're trying to do something new. But yeah, it just comes off cheesy. It just comes off like... It's, it, yeah, these films are taking themselves too seriously, but that was just like... That was... Uh, it just didn't make any sense. It would have been better if he just... Either he had a voice scrambler or he just changed his voice himself. Right, yeah. yeah. And speaking of thinking even lower, Roman Bridger as the killer, I think he's probably the weakest ghost face ever. I didn't like... I found the reveal that that he was Sydney's half-brother and the mastermind between everything that happened in the last two movies to be very silly. And it's not very impactful either because Sydney and Roman, they haven't met at all before the big reveal. In fact, when Roman takes off his mask and reveals himself as the killer, even Sydney, she looks at him in complete confusion, not knowing who he is until he has to tell her. Yeah, that was weakest. That was like the weakest part of the film. Because they're trying to continue that meta thing where it's a film within a film of how like he became a director and then he says his backstory why he became a director or whatnot and the backstory was of Sydney's mother um, and how that relates to like Billy and, and the... And the I think Billy and this and Mickey as well. But yeah, it was just it was trying to like complete all the story threads from the previous movies, but it was it came out very convoluted. Like they're trying to fix everything up. But um but yeah, if they had met or like known each other, it would have been more impactful. And I really do think uh Roman Bridger was a was a soul killer, right? Yeah, just one killer. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been better, like even Wes Craven said, like I said earlier, he wanted Emily Mortimer's character to be the second one. And if you look closely there's a one scene and where um, I think Emily Mortimer's character, she's changing and then she, she has a ghost face mask that falls down. So I think that's like a, a small element of what was originally going to happen. Mm. That would have been a lot better because Emily Mortimer did know that some of the people and when it would have made more sense, but they changed it. Yeah. Such a pity. Wow. Imagine what could have been. Yeah. And although let's try to be a bit fair here, be the good cops and try to point out the things we actually did like about this one. I actually liked that kill where Sarah gets killed by Ghostface and she tries defending herself with these pla fake plastic knives. Now, that's a good use of black comedy and horror. In fact, that is the one moment that I feel felt like a genuine scream film rather than this whole dumpster as a whole. Yeah, there was a lot of good places where the um there was some genius behind it. But for the most part, yeah, especially last, it's like the first two acts I'm okay with. It's just the last act and last reveal when everybody starts, the stretch when they go in the house and everybody gets killed one by one. Yeah, it's a little scary, but it's just like, I don't know, it just didn't, especially with that reveal of Roman, it just didn't. Yeah, me neither. And at the same time, I actually did appreciate how it 
concluded the story of both Gale and Dewey. I really like how they got married at the end because I love these characters and they really have good chemistry together. It's a will they or won't they romance. And at the end, it's definitely a will they. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the only criticism I had was that they gave them more screen time in Scream 2, especially, I think, especially in Scream 3. Because a lot of people responded to their characters. And there was something going on between the actors. Like, um, I, I can't remember, but there was something going on between their screen time and, and uh, Neve Campbell's contract. Because, yeah, Campbell, she, I don't think she wanted, I don't think she's on contract for the second or third one, the third one. But the, yeah, I'm talking about the third film. But then, like, they had to, in order to get her back, or something happened to where they had to cut her screen time. And, you know, she was kind of, I think she was kind of upset about that, that they did it wrong. They did something wrong to her. So that's why you don't see her like in most of the movie. You see these characters. Mm, yeah, that, that too. Yeah, she feels very much like a secondary character in her own movie. But thankfully, things got on a better path. And more than 10 years ago with Scream 4 or Screw Form, as it says in the title, because this feels very much like the Force Awakens of the Scream franchise. And first off, I really love how they made it into a commentary about movie remakes, which have been going, have become the most popular trend in the late 2000s, with all our favorite classics being remade or rebooted. Yeah, yeah, I love that, man. That's, it's continuing that tradition. Like, each film, the first film was about the tropes, the slasher films. Second film was about sequels. Third film was about trilogies. And now this one is about remakes. And it's like, but I like that it's not a remake. It's, it's still a sequel. And uh, yeah, dude, I love the dialogue, self-aware dialogue. People are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah, I really like that. And it made sense because, you know, Scream, Scream is a franchise that comments on the era it's in, you know, the era of film that's in. But it just adds to the story. It makes it more, have its own identity, it makes it more unique. Mm -hmm. It did, and I really love how this movie went through course correcting. After Scream 3 full-on embraced the comedy aspect, this one is more darker and serious, though with some snippets of humor and self-aware dialogue, of course, in the mix. Yeah, yeah, like, it had great, yeah, it's, it's had, Scream, the Scream franchise has that balance of, like, almost parody and soap opera, but like horror to the seriousness. And this film continued that. Um, yeah, it just, I just, when I was just watching it just now, it was just, I loved every second of it. You know, it reminded me of good old Scream, you know, Scream films in, in the past. So it's continuing that tradition. Yeah, and I had the black humor, it's pretty nice. And it continues the whodunit aspect, of course. And uh, I was riveted. I mean, I enjoyed every second of it. I really enjoyed Aiden Pintieri's character, Kirby. Like, <laughs> Yeah, she looks great, but she's also, like, self-aware about this stuff, <laughs> which is awesome. I love her as a character. I love the character. Uh, I loved all the characters. I liked all the characters for the most part. Yeah, it could have been more development, and uh, I like that in the opening scene, they make they criticize that. Oh, these stab movies don't have character development, character development, and the film kind of does that. But I still like the characters, though. Yeah, it sucks that she died, and I really like, I really like that, um, what's the name, uh, one of the film cup guys was a killer. That was a good, good touch. But I did not expect Sydney's cousin. I was scared. I was like, "What?" I, that took me out of it. I was no, I liked it, but like, I was like, "Like, what the hell?" Like, no, this she's a good person. <laughs> she, now she's evil. <laughs> now that, now that is how those properly subverted expectations. And yeah, yeah. For sure. 
And yeah, Jill, I think we can all agree, because yes, the other killers, fucked up as they may be, Jill has got to be the most fucked up. She is the most deranged, the most axe crazy of all the ghost face killers by far, because all well, the other killers like Billy and Stu, Mrs. Loomis, Roman and Nikki, they did have a semblance of a motive like revenge, uh, lost love. Jill, she killed a bunch of people, including her own mom, just so she can get 15 minutes of fame. And she even filmed her own murders, wanting to make a snuff film out of them. Like, and she knows that she is fucked up in the head. Like her quote, sick is the new sane. And she's a teenager, mind you. Yeah, yeah. And it goes back to what you said earlier about these teenagers committing these crimes. These films are almost commenting on that too. I mean, they're all set in high school for the most part. So it's commenting on that. And um, yeah, that was, that was like, what the hell? Like she was so nice, so adorable. I mean, uh, but it made sense. And I like how even Sydney noticed the similarities when um, she came in and she saw uh, Jill and her ex coming through the window. That directly mirrors Billy and her in the first film when Billy was coming through her window. So that was a nice callback. And even Sydney said, you remind me of me. <laughs> yeah, it's like she says these lines, she says these, these dialogue, and but she also realizes how all the dialogue are what she says is kind of cliche too. So that's a nice touch. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's just, yeah, man, I love this, these films. They, they hit all the marks like humor, black comedy and being self-aware meta stuff, which I like and, uh, and trying to revitalize and subvert the genre. So it's nice. It is. Yeah. And also more about screen four, cause back when this movie Kate, before this movie even came out, people were very skeptical because, you know, many felt that the franchise wrapped up after Scream 3 and it should have been a trilogy, but Scream 4 really, really changed their minds. It revitalized the genre, kind of like what The Force Awakens did. It's a mixture of both old and new. Literally, they even updated it now that people have iPhones, live streams, Facebook, it has become a thing now. It really made it more down to earth, which is what this franchise has been known for since day one. Yeah, yeah, like this, these films, they, they continue, they, they are, they're important in the era that they're in and they comment on society at the time. You know, the first film was just about, you know, uh, the high school, it was, it was, it was based on the Gainesville killer in Florida, the guy that was killing students and he raped some kids, raped some women or some girls. And it's just commenting on like, yeah, it's just because there's two facets, always two facets of when these murders happen. It's always how, how crazy the killer is and what he did and how fixated the media becomes on it. And that's what, it creates like the cycle of like, this fascination with killers, but also that could lead into, you know, more, more people like him you know, being inspired or, you know, trying to carry on that tradition of being a killer and doing that. And so these films comment on that, which I love. I love how a film can subvert and be funny and subvert genres and revise the genre, but also comments on society as well, as, a, as a whole and the time that it, the film comes out. So I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, too, it's very, very witty as well. Very, 
a clever spin is what I'd call the screen movies. It's it's bread and butter, really. And also about what you said about Jill being that callback of Jill basically being Sydney. Well, she is a darker reflection of Sydney, really. She wants to be the new Sydney Prescott, but in fact, she is actually the new Billy Loomis. Much like how this is a re a hashtag remake of the original. Because you think about it, I mean, it's always. I think from for the most part, this film was like supposed was trying to be a better version of Scream Three. Like it was trying, it was trying to re re uh, rewrite the wrongs of Scream Three, and I can kind of get that sense from this movie, because both films, both um, Scream Three and Four, it's a family member that's a uh, that's the killer. If you think about it, each film. The killer represents like a facet of Sydney's backstory and what she's struggling with in the movie. In the third film, it's basically her mother, and she was talking about in the conversation with her father. You know, she's still struggling with her mommy issues and what her mother did. And then you find out Rowan Bridger tried to look for his her, his um his mother or for for her mother, and she rejected him. So you know, he wanted revenge on Sydney, and then in the fourth film, it's it's Jill that is jealous of Sydney being famous because she was always not seen as Jill.、Uh, Sydney was more seen as a special one, I guess, and so it's just it, that's what makes it more、um, uh, personal, you know, because of the family member.、Uh, but I feel like this film was just an improvement on the third one in terms of that. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and. I guess the rules do not lie because one of the rules of a remake is that the kills are much more gorier and bloodier. And Scream Four is no joke. Like seriously, these murders are just so brutal and bloody. While the Scream movies have had their fair share of that, here it's just full-on brutality. Like that scene where Ghostface says he's hiding in the closet. But it's actually the closet of the other girl, Olivia, and then he just starts murdering the fuck out of her, and you even get a good money shot of her intestines coming out. Yeah, that is just gnarly as hell. Yeah, it goes back. It's it's coming back to the original. Like it's going back to how good the original was, and then you have Sydney saying that line: "First rule of remakes: don't f the original, don't fuck the original." And this film. Even though it's a sequel, it's not trying to outdo the first film. I never got that sense of trying out. It's just trying to, I guess, attack or critique、uh, the remakes, and、um, it did a good job of that. It still honors the first film because、mm-hmm. you know, again, Sydney still survives, and she learns something new about herself. Each film, she learns something new about herself as a character.、Mm-hmm. Sydney does absolutely, yeah. And apart from the remakes too, Scream Four also it. Pokes fun at the torture porn era that has been going on in the two thousands, especially in the opening scene. You know, with Saw, how it's saying because you don't give a shit who dies because there's just no character development, just body parts whipping and blood spewing. I love that quote so much. And by the way, yeah, especially oh, yeah, especially as a fan of the Saw franchise, this was gold too. Oh yeah, it's great, man. That's why I never really got into Saw. I've only seen Saw Four, which、uh, I couldn't take seriously because it was just. Gore porn everywhere, and like, and、uh, I mean, it's interesting. Con- it's an interesting concept. You have Jigsaw, who's this killer that's trying to get people to see how selfish they can be, and things like that. He puts them in these scenarios, these moral dilemmas. But,、um, but yeah, it's just go- it's just torture porn. It's like the first film was kind of good, and then after that, it just it just focused on that, you know, the, the torture porn. And it's like it's, it's just not you're not gonna get. You're only gonna get people that really enjoy this stuff. You're not gonna get most people that want a, that want a good story. 
And for some reason, it was making money, but now it's kind of sad. Franchise just kind of died out. But yeah, I love that that opening scene when she said that. With the, he's like, yeah, there's, there's these movies that just torture porn. There's no character development. It's just true. She's ragged. Wow, it's just yeah, and also, if you're tall. Anyone who is a newbie at horror, the Scream movies, especially the first one, are a pretty good place to start, really. And especially good introduction to all these horror movies that they mention time and time again. Yeah, 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 because it's in the film, the film, the films, the films are indebted to those films, to those other films. In terms of slasher genre, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, those are all, you know... Uh, precursors, forerunners in the slasher genre. So, Scream is just Scream. It's a franchise that's indebted to that. But in order for Scream to be Scream, it has to, you know, re uh, subvert, revitalize the genre, and do something new. Exactly. Yeah. And also uh, about Scream, it's one I also owe. I'm indebted to too because you see, I was kind of spoiled in the opening scene where they mention the infamous twist in Friday the Thirteenth. You know how Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, was the killer, and that Jason didn't show up until the sequel. I sadly watched that one before I even started Friday the Thirteenth, nineteen eighty. So yeah, I thought I should mention that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I watched all the, all those films when I was a kid. But yes, that's a common misconception. People think that Jason appeared in the first one. He didn't. Uh, I knew that when I was younger, like a lot, because you hear that a lot, you know, online and I guess film fan circles, they say that because people, if, if you're new to the franchise, if you can, you just, it's a misconception Like you expect um, Jason to be, if you just come into it new, you expect Jason to be all the, in all the films, but no, he's in the second one. Right. Oh yeah. And also since we're nearly at the one hour mark and out of time also, uh, Something I should mention is that, sadly, Scream 4 would be the last film Wes Craven has ever directed before his untimely passing years later. And really, what a way to go also, because he'll always be the a master of horror. The guy who gave us Freddy Krueger, Ghostface, The Hills Have Eyes, The Last House on the Left. Now, his work will forever have an impact on all of us horror fans really you know may he rest in peace yeah he's he's gonna go down as one of the best directors he's almost like a new slightly new version of hitchcock because he's he really understands suspense he really understands uh how to make an audience scared and how to make a good story too like it's not just um because in these horror films they could just focus on that instead of the story and the characters but he was able to balance both. He was able to look at both. And both of that makes a good story and it makes a good film. So yeah, he will be missed because he was he was one of the best directors. If he's not in like your top 10, I mean, he should be in your top 10. Maybe not top five, but definitely top 10 or 20, top 20. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And with this new Scream film, I think I am quite enthusiastic for this one, even though... Uh, some might say the franchise ended in Scream 4. I think this new Scream, which I'm going to call Scream 5, not Scream, just to avoid any confusion, because, you know, with the slasher genre, how it's been going in the late 2010s, you know, especially with the new Halloween coming out and being revitalized again, I think it's perfect timing for this movie to even come out. And it helps, too. It's being directed by the same guys who did 
ready or not, which I've still got to see, by the way. And it brings back the original cast as well. Yeah, I like that they're bringing back the original cast because it's such a great concept and franchise. At this point, if you reboot it, it would be something else. It probably wouldn't be Scream anymore because, you know, you would have, I guess you would have to introduce new characters and things like that. But the franchise was so forward thinking at the time that it's going to be hard. If, you, if there ever is a reboot, which I'm sure might happen in the future, it's going to be very hard to top, you know, what came before. Like, yeah, of course, they'll have to introduce new characters. But yeah, it's just going to be very hard to top it. I think that's why they just made another sequel, because like, it's a lot harder to just make a reboot. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's probably not going to be as good as the other. Absolutely true. And making a reboot wouldn't be justified, in my opinion, because it's not like Scream is some dormant horror franchise like all the other slashers like Friday and Nightmare and Texas Chainsaw which haven't be, who which have been complete no-shows lately apart from Halloween of course so I think this movie might poke fun at the new slasher trend that's been going with the new Halloween sequel since its title is the exact same as the original film's title yeah I think that's what I'm gonna go into and I, I'm I'm excited for that because they're continuing Scream's tradition of poking fun and criticizing the movie trends and horror and slasher films. So, yeah, that's a good sign right there. I like the trailer. So, yeah, I'm glad Sydney and everybody else is back. But um, I think they're going to focus more on the new characters more. It seemed like I get, I get that sense. Like, it might be a transition to another franchise or another spinoff. We'll see. But, but yeah, I, I like the idea. It's a shame that Kevin Williamson is not coming back to write it. So they got James Vanderbilt. He's, he's a good writer, and they got other guy, uh, another partner he's co-writer he's with. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but yeah, I like the trailer. It looked all right. Did, yeah. Really sold for this one, yeah. And it looks like we are now out of time. But it was more than enough, I'd say. Thank you so much, Emmanuel, for coming back to the show again. And we will see you next month, or should I say two months from now, for our Stanley Kubrick episode. Awesome. I'm almost done, too. I, got, I think I got three films left, and that's it. Then I'm done. Awesome. Yeah, me too. But until then, this has been Sin City, live for CMRU.ca and Feel Out Images. I'm Nick Manessis, joined by Emmanuel Akinola, and we'll see you next week, same time as always, here on Sin City. Sin City. Come on down to Arrakis, everyone's favorite desert planet outside of Tatooine. Full of giant worms, family feuds, and delicious spice. While you're at it, don't miss Doom, now playing in theaters. This is only the beginning. Then, next Friday, tune into Sin City as they review this epic adaptation, or rather the first half of it, but what the hell. Only on CMRU.ca, Spotify, Feel Out Images, Google, and Apple Podcasts. It's time.